being Persian was something I used to like want to hide. Today, at age 46, is one of the things I'm most proud of. You know, being part of this incredible culture, having this incredible family, having that to share with my kids and my friends. I've come a long way. Welcome to Atomic Moms, a weekly parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and I celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and caregivers all over the world in order to share their unique stories and the universal experience of raising a child. You can find us on our website, AtomicMoms.com, on social media, and also on iTunes. Subscribe so you can get a new episode every week. Hey, everyone. Okay, it's a rainy day in northern Michigan. Yes, we're still here, and it's amazing. And I just took my daughter to an indoor play place, and it's so magical and sweet. And it's so interesting to watch how quickly it can devolve into Lord of the Flies when there are a lot of older kids there running around on a rainy day because everyone has so much energy. And it was fascinating to watch the boys sort of climb over everybody and or jump over all these younger children or just grab what they wanted to grab. And they weren't doing it maliciously. They just are children and, you know, not thinking about others. (laughs) They just are getting what they want. And my daughter, Sabrina, would not put up with it. They would try to climb over her on the ladder and she wouldn't budge. Or she was playing with a Lego and a boy tried to swipe it from her and she grabbed it and she would not let go. And so it was so interesting as a parent to watch it and try and figure like, when do I intervene? Because she'll hold on to that Lego, but she'll also give this look that could kill. And it's so funny to watch these boys like, I guess, deal with a girl who's like, no, I'm not giving in. And then I have this like total weird inner struggle of like wanting her to play nicely with the other kids. And at the same time being like, you know what? They can wait their turn. Like get in line, buster. She's the one going up this ladder. Or like she doesn't need to give you this just because you want it. She had it first. She should hold on. I'm figuring out when to step in and to and when to just let her be herself. Because you know what? It's a delicate dance that she'll have to do the rest of her life, right? Like getting her needs met while not totally alienating her peers. I haven't figured it out. <sighs> Being human is so complicated. One thing I do not have mixed feelings about right now is today's conversation with Elena Epstein. She's a journalist and director of content at L.A. Parent Magazine. She grew up in Iran and came to America during the revolution of 1979. I hate that I got my history lesson from Ben Affleck, but you might also remember Argo and the U.S. hostage crisis. Okay, that's when Elena was 10 years old and moving to the United States. Can you imagine being a 10-year-old immigrant knowing very little English and ending up in a classroom in L.A. I I can't wait for you to hear the special way she ends up bonding with her own mother and reconnecting with her culture later in life. So Elena has two daughters, and she's just gotten back from the whole college touring process with her youngest. And so she commiserates about mom peer pressure, and we talk about how that race to get into the quote-unquote right college starts in preschool. So speaking of the totally bonkers process to get into college, next week we have the college essay guy, Ethan Sawyer, back on for a second episode. If you haven't listened to the first one, you can find it 
on our iTunes archives. And don't worry, we talk about all ages. Let's be honest, this podcast isn't really about the kids. It's about how we as adults can grow and heal and be a little less nutty so we can support our children. So next week, Ethan and I talk about raising our young kids, and he also leads us through this awesome exercise that he uses with his high school students for their college essays. And it's a way of understanding why we do what we do and a tool for mapping out other ways we can problem solve and get our needs met. So subscribe on iTunes for next week's. Uh, And last but not least, if you've enjoyed some recent episodes, please share a review on iTunes. We love hearing from you, and if you write it on iTunes, it'll give us a little boost for our ranking, which means more listeners will see Atomic Moms and check it out and find out more about us. I'll be right back with Elena Epstein. Oh boy. She's definitely my new mom crush. She's so awesome. Okay, be right back. so much for talking to me. Absolutely. I'm so excited. I wish we could do this in person right now because I love being in your presence. Um, You have this soft strength about you that I'd really like to cultivate in my own life. So thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. A lot of our listeners are new moms and I'm excited to hear about what it's like on the other side. Uh, (laughs) what it's like, you know, down the road. But I wanted to start off by talking about your childhood. I feel like there's always a defining moment uh, in a child's life that sort of shapes how you look at the world. And being born in Tehran, you moved to America with your parents when you were 10. And it was during the 1979 Iranian Revolution. So will you please share with our listeners uh, where I want them to know what was your first home in America? Because I think this is so fantastic and so wild, and it should be an independent film. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. And I love your podcast, and I love what you're doing for the mom community, because I think the number one thing for all of our moms is to support each other and really share these stories, because we all have our crazy thoughts and we all think we're doing it all wrong. And it's nice to hear that we're not alone. So thank you for doing that. Um, My childhood, yes, I was um, born in Tehran, Iran, and I have two older brothers, um, one who's eight years older and one who's 10 years older. So um, my family had sent them to the U.S. to go to college um, overseas, which was a common thing to do at that time. And while they were here going to UCLA, the revolution broke out in Iran. And I was 10, and we actually, we lived, our house was right by the American embassy. I used to ride my bike in front of the American embassy all the time. And as you remember, that that was where the hostages were taken, and that was an insane place to be. I, I remember, you know, at night we would hear... Um, people had were on the rooftops of the American embassy and they would yell, you know, death to America. And um, so you were there during that moment. Like, we, we actually were not there when the hostages were taken. We okay. were here. My dad was there. He, he ended oh up gosh. staying um, to trying to sell whatever he could sell to come. 
but we were there when the revolution broke out. Um, we actually ended up moving out of our house. My uncle lived across town and because we felt like there was so much going on around the American embassy and there was a lot of protests going on there that we thought his house would be safer. So my mom and dad and me, we moved into their place, which was, you know, across town and it felt a lot quieter there. Um, and when we moved out of our house to there, like literally, like as if you're going for a sleepover, like I didn't really pack, like we didn't really pack. We just closed the door and left. And that was the last time I actually saw my house because then we were at my uncle's house. And as soon as we could get a visa to leave, we did. So I never returned back to our house to even say goodbye or gather anything or it was just um, a very hasty way to leave, but we were very thankful that we could do that. So schools were shut down. Um, there was a military curfew going on. Um, the news was on all the time. Um, and my dad put my mom and I on a plane the minute the airports were back. The airport shut down for a while. You couldn't leave the country. But the first week that they were open, we got on a plane and came to L.A. and moved into my brother's one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> and But we were so, so grateful. You don't know how happy, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter that there was no place, to, there was no bed to sleep on or any of that because we were just happy to be not listening to gunshots and not listening to people chanting death to America and just feeling safe. I, I remember feeling very safe being here. And that was a really good feeling. Did you miss, I mean, at age 10, I remember when I was 10, I felt like I was already a grown up. Like you have these close friendships. Um, did you, were you able to keep in contact with any of your friends? No, no. I had my very best, I had two best friends um, Shadi, who was next door to me, I mean, I practically lived at her house. Um, and I always think about her. I always wonder, like, I've tried finding her on Facebook. I've tried. Nope. I was literally no goodbyes. Um, no, I'll, you know, let's keep in touch. I don't have any contact. And my best friend from school, same, same thing. Nobody, nobody knew what was going to happen the next day when, I'm sure they probably got out. Maybe they went to Europe. Maybe I don't know where they went. But everybody was trying to, you know, figure out what are we going to do? How, you know, and it was chaotic. And there really wasn't an opportunity to even give a last hug and a goodbye and exchange information. But I think about them. I, it's funny because so many Persians live in L.A., and I'm like, God, I wonder, I would even know what they look like now. You know, I'm 46. So I'm like, would I wow, even recognize them? You probably see their them? children. <laughs> you might recognize their child and be exactly. like, oh, that looks like my friend. Exactly. But I do think about them. It must have been so upsetting to say goodbye to your father. I'm wondering what it was like for your mother to try to normalize your childhood when now you're suddenly on a college campus in America how did she keep you all grounded? You know, it, my brothers lived in a an apartment, not on campus, they, in like um, in the Hancock Park, like where the Grove is. So okay. it was like this 1920s um, older building with this 
lady downstairs who didn't like children. And so we had to be very quiet. <laughs> that was my first apartment in LA. It was on Sycamore, actually. Yeah, they were on it Cochrane. They okay. were on Cochrane. And the, this lady downstairs was, you know, just didn't like the fact that there was a 10-year-old now upstairs. So when my cousin, my other 10-year-old cousin would come over, we had to be very, very quiet because she did not like any noise. Um, but I think... It, you know, it's funny when you, when I have my own kids and everything is like, I try to keep everything very consistent and very, and I think back to, you know, what we went through, I think you just, you just do it. You know, you, you become resilient because of that. I had a lot of family here already. I think dad made it easy. I had a lot of cousins who had left right around when we did or a little before us. So having other kids around and other family around certainly made life a lot easier. It was very hard to say goodbye to my dad that that day in the airport. You know, he's crying. We're crying. Um, I'll never forget saying goodbye. That was very hard. And I worried about him. I worried about him. It took about eight months for him to join us. And that was a long eight months. I would, like every night I would think about him and I would say a little prayer and I would, you know, um, it, that was a very difficult time, but I think having other family around and when you're a kid, I think you're, you just, I started school right away and you get caught in that, okay, making friends and doing school. So that distracts you that from the day to day too. How have you noticed this experience sort of reflected in your own parenting? I think I'm, you know, family is like so important to me, Um, extended family, my own immediate family, because they were such a support system during my own childhood. So I really wanted like my kids to know all of their extended family and their cousins. It was like critical for me, for them to feel that love and that bond of being a part of this big tribe who's there for each other, no matter what, you know, when we first got here, having my uncles and having my aunts and my cousins, you know, they were our sanity. They were, we were each other's sanity. We would all, you know, um, there was a store called Fetco at that time, um, which was like before Costco, there was this store called Fetco. It was down by the airport and like we would all 35 cousins go to Fedco together on a <laughs> it was like an event and we would all like let's go see Santa Monica we would all go to Santa Monica together and we spent so much time together and i think that's what helped us assimilate and you know i spoke very little english when i came here and i didn't have the right clothes i didn't know you were supposed to have a you know, metal lunchbox when you went to school. Those things didn't exist in Iran. I didn't, like I took leftover Persian food to school and everybody else had like their turkey sandwiches and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I had to learn all of that. So having, you know, my cousins around and family around kind of helped with that transition tremendously. With assimilating, do you, with your own children now, have you ever had any concerns about your daughters fitting in? Like, has that ever been an issue in your adult life? Like, oh, well, because I 
because when I was 10, I was the only student in the ESL class and I wanted to fit in so badly. Like, do you ever notice yourself projecting that onto your daughters or are you just like way more well-adjusted than I am? <laughs> no, no, that's for sure. That's, I think you project all of everything you project onto them. And as much as you read and as much as you tell yourself, don't do it, don't do it. You're going down that path. Of course, of course you do it. Um, I think one of the biggest, biggest things I projected, which looking back, I do regret is, you know, my husband is American. And um, when we had our girls, I thought about like, do I want to speak Farsi to them and, you know, then speak English and then then I thought, no, I, I don't, because I don't want, there was this thing in my head that I want them to be fully American. I don't want them to have even this, like, I still, I'm very self-conscious about my accent. And, you know, I, I go back to that time of being, you know, the ESL student, the kid from, you know, far, far away. And I did not want them to ever, ever feel that. And, you know, so I, my parents spoke Farsi to them, but as soon as they went to school, it was all English all the time. And they speak very little Farsi now. And I do look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? Of course, they could have learned Farsi and English and be fluent in both languages. It wouldn't have been an issue, but it was my issue. And I, I kind of denied them that second language because I didn't want them to ever feel like a foreigner. In our conversations, though, you, you have mentioned that when you became a mother, you were sort of drawn back into your own heritage. And I'd love for our listeners to hear a little bit about like what it was about motherhood that brought you back to your roots. Sure. Um, when I was, you know, um, when I started working and going to college, you know, there was this, when we first came here, there was definitely, you know, Iran was on the news 24-7. The hostages were taken. There, it was, you know, it was terrible. And it wasn't great being from Iran at that time. You know, so we would always, we learned, like when people said, oh, where are you guys from? Instead of saying we're from Iran, we would say we're Persian. Because most people, like, they're like, oh, okay. And they didn't, like... <laughs> We had no idea where that is. Like, okay. Like they knew Persian cats and they knew Persian rugs, rugs. but but they're like, oh, okay. They would nod their head. And, but if we said Iranian, then suddenly they're thinking Peter Jennings and the hostages. So we stayed away from that, but there was a lot of, you know, animosity towards Iran, understandably so. And so you, you grow up in that backdrop and, you know, we, I have a very long last name and in school it was always like they're taking role and then you know when they got to your name because the teacher would stop and try to figure out how to pronounce it. Yeah. And My daughter, by the way, my daughter has a Polish last name and it's impossible and so she feels you there. Right? Yeah, like, exactly. You just know. You just know. They get this like terror in their eyes. Like they just like when <laughs> anyone tries to pronounce our last name, like even dear friends, they don't, they're just like, I mean, friends we've had for a decade, they'll just be like, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> and your daughter will learn to like, oh, that's my name. I'm here. <laughs> yep. Just, you, yeah. You learn exactly. that look. You learn that look. And so when I started, when I started college and I was so adamant that I wanted to be American. I wanted to be just like everybody else. And, you know, I used to dream in elementary school that my name was, 
Jennifer and I had like freckles <laughs> and I had red hair <laughs> and that people would call me Jen and, and all of those things. So, like, I envied people who were all American and had, you know, I felt like they had an easier life. They didn't have to be in these two different worlds like I always was. And so I totally embraced, I didn't, I didn't know how to cook Persian food. I didn't, I don't know how to read or write Farsi. I didn't pursue it. I didn't listen to the Persian radio like a lot of uh, my family did. When I got to college, like there was the Persian group you could go hang out with and all my cousins like go and join. And I was like, no way, I'm not doing that. Um, so I had all American friends. I, my husband is American. I, you know, I really immersed myself in the American culture. And then I had my daughter and something inside of me, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it, but something inside of me just started feeling like she needs to know where you came from. She's Persian. She's, you know, you have this beautiful culture. You have this wonderful family. You have to, like, teach her. You have to expose her. So it was really because of her that I kind of went back and, like, I bought my first thing I did for Aaron was, you know, they have all these great music, like bananas and pajamas and all these fun CDs that you buy um, to listen to music while she was going to sleep or when we were playing. And I, the first thing I did is I bought Persian CDs, Persian music CDs, and mm-hmm. I started playing. And I, she loved it, and I loved it. I realized how much I love Persian music, and I love dancing to Persian music. And we would dance together, and it, that became the first thing. And I bought, like I went to Westwood, and I found a Persian bookstore. And even though I had to ask the guy, I'm like, I can't read Farsi, so can you help me find some children's books so my mom can read to her? Mm. So I went and I bought these books with the help of the bookseller and bought the books. And my mom would read these books to her, which uh, was lovely, and I loved that. And slowly, then I started asking my mom, like, my mom would cook a lot and bring it for me. She was such an incredible help. And then I thought, you know what, I should learn how to do these things myself. I should learn how to make Persian food. So I started asking her one by one, you know, how to make this stew and how to make that rice. And I, there was something so natural and so wonderful about that. And I loved when my girls like walk in the house now and they're like, Oh, it smells so good. And it's always some Persian food that I'm making that they like love. And it reminds them of their childhood and my mom's house or, or their cousin's house and their friends. I, I love one of my favorite things is when their friends would come over and they're like, Elena, can you make Persian food? <laughs> And they would go home and tell their families how much they love eating at our house because of our stews and our barberry rice. And they would describe it to their families. And that made me so proud. And I'm so glad that that light bulb went on because it today, one of the things that I, you know, I, I think back of being Persian was something I used to like want to hide 
today at age 46 is one of the things I'm most proud of is, you know, being part of this incredible culture, having this incredible family, having that to share with my kids and my friends. It's I've come a long way. Do you think you'll ever take them to Iran? I would love to. I would love for my husband to. I would love to see it as an adult. You know, my last memories are, you know, I I remember what my school looked like. I remember what our house looked like. But my memories are very fuzzy. I would love to go see. It's a beautiful country. I would love to see it as an adult. I would love for my husband to see it, for my girls to see it. When th- I'm a little nervous now doing it, um, mm-hmm. but I think if things calm down and relations with the U.S. are better, I would love to do that. Well, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'd also love a little advice um, for how to get our children uh, to the college years. You know, my daughter's just starting preschool, um, but it feels like all the parents around me are already talking about, you know, you got to get into the right preschools because it'll be a good feeder school to elementary school, which then leads you to the best high school, which gets you into college. And so it's like this craziness starts at age two. You've got one daughter who has just completed her third year of college. You have another daughter who's about to go to college. Um, So I'm wondering if you could sort of alleviate some of the parental anxiety about you know, our kids heading to the college years and that we're not going to screw them up. You won't. (laughs) Trust me, you won't. There is, there really is. The pressure is so intense and it just, it started for all of us. It started with preschool and then elementary school and it, it becomes this race, this race to, you know, what we all think is the right college and being on this side of it, having one daughter who's, absolutely thriving in her college and another about to start this great adventure. You know, we went, we went through that whole madness of test scores and take as many AP classes as you can. And did we make the right choice by staying in public school versus putting them in a private school, questioning every decision we made? Um, You know, you truly do like as the college process starts and you start filling out those applications and the ACT scores and the SAT scores come back and you're like, did we make the right decision? Should we have gone to that elite private school? You know, my kids love their public school. They love their friends. They, they love the sports program. That's where they want. That's where they were happy. And, you know, now that it's all said and done, I'm glad we went with what made them comfortable with where they wanted to be. Um, we didn't, um, I'll give you uh, an example of, that I tell a lot of friends who are going through this process. When my older daughter was, I think in 10th grade, she played uh, softball was her thing. She loved softball. And we were sitting there um, on the bleachers during a game and talking to another mom. And I said, oh, what's your daughter doing over the summer? And she's like, oh, well, she's going to Haiti to build houses. <laughs> I, I should not laugh because it's a beautiful thing. But right. when it's, you can feel, and I don't know if this is true with this person, I'm totally projecting, but a lot of times it's, you're like, oh my gosh, you're just doing that for the resume. Totally. Right. And I'm, I'm sitting there like, she's going to Haiti to build houses. And I remember <laughs> calling my best friend after, I'm like, 
I am the loser mom here. Our kids were never going to get into college because my daughter's playing softball over the summer. Yeah, and exactly. And she has to now compete with someone who is building houses in Haiti. In Haiti, yeah. She hasn't founded an orphanage yet. Exactly. <laughs> or started a foundation. I'm like, well, we're right. never going to, our kids are not going to go in college. She wasn't, she wasn't on Children's Jeopardy at age right. seven. Exactly. Exactly. You don't have a chance. You might yeah. as well give up now. Losers. Total. Complete. <laughs> And, you know, and you go through that because you do hear, I mean, to be clear, it costs thousands of dollars for you to pay for your kids to go and build houses exactly. in Haiti. So, right. And meanwhile, and also, by the way, just for a moment, like there's so many parents out there, their kids need to have, yeah, they need to have summer jobs. Exactly. And so it's like, it's so ridiculous that parents are spending all this money for children to have experiences when really, like if they do a gut check, it's for the resume. When other kids, like they can't compete in that way. And also like if I were at a university, I would want to know like what is this student doing in her own environment where she lives to make a difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I truly do believe that that is what the top universities are looking for because the way it panned out, the way like, you know, where everybody ended up being, they, everybody ended up being where they were meant to be. You know, all those things you did to build the resume didn't necessarily mean the other kids who worked at Baskin Robbins during the summer, they did compete just fine because they were real and they were authentic in their essays. And I actually, you know, because of what I do, I was able, I I said, you know what, I'm going to do a story and I'm going to pick, I'm going to interview the admissions uh, officer, the dean of admissions at UCLA, at USC, at Pepperdine, at LMU. And I'm going to ask him, tell me, what is it that you're looking for? And I did a story on that. And that's what you said is exactly what they said. They said, we see a lot of these kids who we know their parents paid so they can do these exotic extracurricular. And to us, it's not real. We want the kid, mm-hmm. you know, if you worked at Baskin Robbins, that's great. If you love soccer and all you did was play soccer, great. We want to know what makes you happy, what makes you um, want to pursue something, you know, in your own neighbor. If you helped, you know, your local elementary school, that's great. You don't need to go to some exotic land to do it. And did they mention anything? Did they mention anything about how? I'm sure they can feel sort of the parental pressure. And when they're reading these essays, I'm sure they've got to be like, this isn't this child talking. This is their mother talking. You know, Dr. Shafali talks about sort of like, you know, putting the egoic fantasies on your children. And it must, half of their job must be sort of weeding out like, who is this kid versus who do their parents want them to seem like they are? Absolutely. Absolutely. They did talk about that. And they... You know, they like, I think it was UCLA who gave an example of like, there's this essay about a, this young lady wrote all about, she was very much into mushrooming, which I, I knew nothing about, but I guess you go into the fields and you find different types of mushrooms and then you research them. She's like, nobody could make somebody write about that. This is truly, <laughs> right? Right? like nobody know I don't care how much you pay a college private college counselor nobody can come up with that 
Yes, what's I love it. Well, now one listener will do it. One right. listener. Will <laughs> exactly. Mushrooming is the way to get into your yeah, family. Find something very, yeah, that's great. It's so funny. Right. Yeah, foraging. Foraging is big. Right, exactly. Um, but it was her passion. She wanted to research it. Or, you know, like my daughter had um, this uh, guy in her class who loved Russian literature. Not because the class, like, assigned it. He loved to read Russian literature on his own. Had and, you know, when you write about those things and when you tell people it's authentic, it's real, he's doing it on the weekend, nobody's forcing him, he's doing it. Yeah. So it is definitely yeah, those things. Those books are too long. It's too much of a commitment to right. fake it with Russian <laughs> literature. Uh, <laughs> can we talk for a moment about mom peer pressure? Sure. Uh, because, you know, you're talking about the mom saying about, you know, that they're child's going to Haiti and, you know, you might feel like, oh God, my kid's not going to Haiti. (laughs) How are you able to center yourself when you feel that sort of like competitive edge coming up in conversation? I think, um, and it, it does have, don't, I shouldn't say it has never happened to me because of course it's happened to me. Um, you, and it starts early, like it starts, you know, when, you know, test grades or, you know, I, mean, I can start younger. What, when is your kid potty training? Exactly. What, uh, Are they oh, talking? She still, yeah. He still has a pacifier, you know? Right. Yeah. All of it. Right. You're absolutely right. It does. When do they start walking? When do they start talking? Exactly. You start comparing from early, early on. Baby I mean, it's even, it goes, I mean, from the first week, it's like, oh, did your baby gain their weight back after the hospital yet? Exactly. Like, it's true. It's true. And then like, are you the mom who leaves little notes in their lunch? And I'm like, right. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Oh man. Nope. Yeah. So it, it is, it starts, it's so much of, of what is your kid doing versus what other kids are doing. And I think you have to keep coming back to, is my kid happy? Is my kid like have nice friends? who care about her and she cares about her friends and she likes school and she's adjusted and whatever she's doing, is she's it's a soccer, is a theater, is it music, is it make her happy and she feels fulfilled and accomplished and successful in what she's doing, then that's what you need to focus on. You know, for us, like when you get into the college like there were people who would post on like Facebook every single college that their kid got accepted to the minute they, and and we're like, what? <laughs> yeah. And that you they start make it feeling, all about them, right? And you start feeling like, oh my god, what if she doesn't get in her first choice, and what if this happens, or how? You know, it's gonna happen. No matter how hard you worked, you might not get into your first or second or even your third choice. And honestly, does it feel like a reflection on you? Like when your kid is getting into these schools or not getting into these schools, does it feel like everybody's sort of judging the past 18 years of parenting? Like, well, if you had made other choices, they would have gotten in. Does it feel like it's about the parent? In a lot of ways, it does. Absolutely. 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 Ugh. And I think it's important. I'm not looking forward to I this. Know. <laughs> it does because they're like, well, you shouldn't have let her maybe focus so much on soccer <laughs> or maybe you should have mm-hmm. like, you know, chose a smaller high school. Maybe you should have sent her to some exotic, you know, ex- extracurricular 
But then you have to come back to reality and say, you know, my daughter is successful because she worked hard. It had nothing to do with us. I didn't take the test. I didn't do all of that. We provided a great family life, and that's what you should focus on. What they choose to do from there has to be their decision. It has to be their success. You're there to celebrate their success, but it is their success. And I, it shouldn't be a reflection on parents. And I think a lot of parents feel like I, I, you know, my kid is at an Ivy League. I got them there. I'm like, no, I think they got themselves there, you know, because mm-hmm. that was where they wanted to be. Um, and if Ivy League is not for them, that's okay. You know, I think yeah. a lot of parents get caught up in, well, the name brand or the prestige, whereas having gone through, you know, two months of college tours now, I don't think there is a bad college out there. I honestly don't think there is. Every, every college will have top professors. Every college will have opportunities for growth. It's just where your kid is going to thrive, where they're going to be happy. And you've got to let them make that choice on their own. That's such good advice. I also love that you have said, you know, that there is more than one path to success and happiness. So that will be the mom bomb today for this episode. There is more than one path to success and happiness. And I just wanted to round it out with this week's mom session, which is uh, LA Parent Magazine. You know, I'm wondering if you could share just a little bit about how uh, LA Pair Magazine became a family business. I know you and your husband, this is so cute, guys. You have to all hear this. Uh, you met your husband at the college newspaper and we you both did. became news reporters. So tell us a little bit about LA Parent Magazine. And if people are in other parts of the country, which I know they are because I see the statistics, like, is there a way that they can get it? Like, can they just go online or can they join your newsletters? How can they get involved, even if they're not in Los Angeles? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, LA Parent Magazine has been around for 35 years. Um, My husband and I bought the magazine a little over three years ago, and it's been the greatest ride of our careers. We're so honored to be a part of it. And yes, if moms are living in other parts of the country, there's laparent.com that you can go online and read these great articles we put together. We do a whole education um, publication that's, uh, we cover everything from preschool all the way to road to college because we're all, our whole staff is living what we're talking about. We're all parents. (laughs) We all have kids at different stages. So when I was going through the whole college thing, I'm like, let's do more stories about this. And we have, you know, we have um, editors who have kids in the preschool and the baby. So we cover it all. And my husband and I did meet in college working for our college paper. And to I mean, have there's the- nothing cuter than that. Nothing cuter. <laughs> it was, it, it, we always say it's like we, it's like two chefs who now own a restaurant. It's like the most mm. exciting thing in the world because the idea of having your own publication was one of those dreams that you never thought would come true. Um, I used when my first job when I was in high school, I worked for this little publication called Park La Brea News, which, you know, was owned by a husband and wife team. And they were I, I would walk into this little newspaper office and I would dream I thought they were living the dream 
I, you know, running this little community newspaper. And here we are, you know, living the dream, running our own publication that's very community-based, is very much about L.A., and it's about parenting, which for Ron and I is there is no more important topic to write about, to research, to be a part of. Um, I really, truly feel like your family life, if, if things are good there, if your kids are happy, if you and your husband, your, if things are good, everything else will work itself out. If you lose a job, you'll figure it out. If, you know, everything else you can figure out, if you have this strong foundation, if you have this home that supports you. So for us, um, every article we do, everything we do, it's really about helping families build that foundation, build that that strength where you have fun with your kids, you have dinner with your kids. Like if I could tell parents, you know, the one thing you can do to ensure that you will have a solid home life is have dinner with your kids. Simple act of come together, sit around a table and enjoy a meal. That sets such an amazing foundation for everything that your kids will do. You know, go out, go to the park, go to free museum days, go, you know, to concerts in the park. There's so much going on in not in L.A., whatever city you live in. There's so much going on that doesn't even cost that much. But it's that time, that time that you take to just be with your kids and do something fun that will stay with them forever. And it will carry them through hard times when they have to, you know, make hard decisions, when they have to move out of the house and, you know, grow wings and do their, their thing, you know, you've given them the right foundation by spending that time, by, you know, having fun together. You can, you cannot go wrong by doing that. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to figure out what I'm going to make for dinner. <laughs> Do it. Make that honestly. Make, I think that's number it. one. Now, this is yeah, it. I don't, I don't like cooking, but if you're, but you know what? After you just said that, I'm going to um, maybe I'll get takeout. But we will sit down and we exactly. will eat together. As a you family don't have tonight. to cook. You don't have to. cook. I can promise Take, you that. Yeah, just come together and sit together. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. Uh, I love your company and uh, I look forward to hanging out with you soon. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on Atomic Moms. 